Welcome to Win the Future, a podcast where we chat with folks who are tackling the most significant challenges our communities face today to make for a better tomorrow. I'm your host, Rep Roaster. This is episode number 19. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Win the Future. I'm your host, Rep Roaster, and today we have a very special guest, who Stephen Rubin, who is a certified elder law attorney, and is also the president-elect of the Connecticut chapter of the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys. And Steve, welcome to the program. Thanks for being on. Thank you for having me, Brett. Pleasure's all on this side of the the mic. But um, Steve, so just to start, kind of a 30,000-foot view here, um, can you talk a little bit about why elder law is something you you made your professional endeavor and why it's so important just overall. I came to elder law a different way. A lot of people come into elder law are, are attorneys who've been around for a while. And as their clients age, they started seeing some of the issues. I came into it as a very young attorney uh, because while I was in law school, my mom was diagnosed with ALS. And I started having to do a significant amount of the research that's really necessary for our clients, for her, and just kind of learning some of the programs and I found that as I got deeper and deeper into it, and after I passed the bar and was, was practicing in a different area of law, I found it just kind of in, liked helping people. I, I got to actually see people, give them a reward. There's no other practice area that I think exists where you get letters from clients, children, after a client dies, and a thank you card basically saying, like, you made a difference in their life. Thank you for what you did. Um, so I think elder law just really gave me something that I was looking for. It kind of found me versus me finding it in a lot of ways. And because when I was doing it, it was mostly just kind of estate planning. And I, I started jumping deeper and deeper into it. And now it's all I want to do. It's all my firm focuses on. Um, why is it so important? I think elder law is a misnomer in some ways. The original title for elder law involved people as they were aging. And that's still a huge part of society. We deal with a lot of people who are aging and you know, whether it's aging in place or looking at the long-term aspects, business continuation, things like that. But elder law actually encompasses a number of different areas of law. So I also deal with a lot of special needs planning for children. So it's becoming a bigger and bigger deal because we're starting to see that we need plans. You know, it used to be, okay, I had a document and that was my plan. But the reality is the document's only as good as the things that go around it. So it's really about having that plan in place. And that's what elder law attorneys really do. Got it. Got it. And, and within that plan context, I know that there's a tax lien component or a, or a lien component of this uh, that um, I'm wondering if you can kind of explain why that's so important and um, or what the legislature is looking to do on that front at the state level. One of the biggest things that elder law attorneys deal with is helping people find, get and pay for care. And when you're looking at things from a care perspective, the most common program people utilize in the long term is Medicaid. You know, there's a number of different programs within Medicaid. There's the, the misnomer of Medicaid's a program. It's not. It's a series of programs, and they have different rules. And there's income and asset requirements. And a big part of the program allows the state to be reimbursed using a lien for anything it pays out towards someone's care if they meet the statutory requirements, which are both federal and state rules. The problems we've been having with the lien program is sometimes liens shouldn't exist in certain situations. 
they're overused or we're using them on programs where we really probably shouldn't be. And COVID has kind of exacerbated some of the lean programs in the state. One of the bigger ones we're seeing is a lot of younger people who couldn't afford to stay home and they, they needed the cash assistance programs and grants from the state for insurances because they were out of work. The businesses were shut down during COVID. And what we want to do is make sure that those liens no longer attach to property because the liens can follow you the rest of your life. We've had situations where someone had a lien from a program they got 40 or 50 years ago, and it doesn't show up until they're deceased. And all of a sudden they have this lien that no one else in the family was ever aware of that they ever got any benefits. And it sometimes are very small numbers, but they exist. And we want to make sure we clarify when those liens should be there, what programs they should follow us on and how they should be used to make sure we don't put a lien on someone unnecessarily. Got it. And I know you kind of addressed this uh, within that, that response, but can you give us just kind of an isolated um, example narrative of how that might play out? One of the more common ones we'll, we'll see these days is uh, an individual residing in their home who needs long-term care. In order to qualify for benefits, the state will allow them to remain home and the house will be exempt so they can still get the Medicaid benefits. But when they pass away, the state gets a lien against that property. Now that is an appropriate lien and we want those to occur. We're not against those liens. Now you take another circumstance where someone went on the program earlier in life because they lost their job, they were unemployed for a very short period of time, but they still needed support. Those are the liens we want to prevent because they're not people who are going on the significant financial cost for the state. They're individuals who are generally of their no not of their own volition, not of their own will, not attempting to get on these programs, but forced into those circumstances where they've had to go on them. Or in another case where you might see it is someone who's younger but disabled. Um, we have a couple of clients in their 20s who are permanently disabled and they might inherit an interest in a house. That interest is exempt during their lifetime. But when they pass, the state would get to recover against it and it wouldn't be able to pass to their kids or to anyone else. So what we're working on is trying to prevent those liens from just attaching forever, but simplifying it down and try to make it so that the liens don't attach to every single piece of real estate, but limit it to certain dollar figures in a lot of ways. No, that, that completely makes sense. And so I know within the, within the scope of the lien piece, there's what role does the Department of Social Services play? And then kind of on top of that, what's the difference between age in place and institutionalized care? So Department of Social Services administers a significant number of programs that we run on in the state. Medicaid is charged through the Department of Social Services. Almost all of the home care facility-based programs, whether it's uh, adult protective services or anything else, are all through DSS. So DSS plays a very large role in having these programs and making them accessible. The liens that are done through DSS by DAS, so the Department of Administrative Services, is actually who files the liens against the properties. So it depends on the program. One of our big problems with the way the liens have worked historically, and this is a Connecticut issue that we've been working on for about five years now, is what we call leapfrogging. Yeah, and the idea of leapfrogging is basically goes back to modern feudal times of property law. Uh, it brings me back to my first day of law school, first in time, first in right. If you record a lien on a piece of real estate first, you're the first lien holder and that should be it. 
with Medicaid liens in certain situations, the state has utilized the programs to leap ahead of a prior secured creditor. So how does this impact you? Let's say mom's at home and you know mom needs a little bit of care coming in. She can't afford it on her own. And as a nice kid, you start loaning her money. You know, then when what you get in return for that bread is you get a mortgage on mom's house, essentially. So now you have a lien against mom. And if you paid out $30,000, you're getting a lien for basically $30,000. It's pretty simple math. Mom then develops into a situation where she can't remain home and she goes to an institutionalized facility. The property has to get sold, but the state also gets a lien against the sale price for what it's paying out for her to be in the facility now. So if they're paying out $12,000 a month, they're getting back $12,000 a month. And it adds up against the property. But you were recorded before the state of Connecticut. Your lien has priority under modern title law. However, what we have seen is because mom may have received a benefit at any point in her lifetime. So if mom was on a Medicare program that the state funded or mom got any other state program any point in her life, doesn't have to be current the state will utilize their lien to jump ahead of you. Now they get paid back before you. Where this matters is, is the state's lien is growing. The longer mom stays in the facility, the bigger their lien. So if the property value is only worth $100,000, you have a $30,000 lien. In less than seven months, the state's lien is greater than yours. Now you have zero shot of getting paid back because your lien is going to dissipate. Second in line creditors don't get paid in full. So what happens is if the state doesn't get paid in full or doesn't get all of the funds, and in some cases we've had these cases where the kids have loaned out so much money that it's worth more than the property, then the state has paid out more than what the property is worth. All of the proceeds, if they don't go to the state, the state will not release their lien, which means you can't sell the property, but the kids then get nothing. We wanna clean that up. We wanna clarify when and where the state gets liens. We're not saying the state shouldn't recover against these pieces of property. As a taxpayer, we actually appreciate that the state can recover against it. But what we want to do is prevent the kid who's just being a really good child by loaning mom money and is legally secured on the land records from losing their interest in the property. We want to make sure if you give mom 30000 you get your 30000 back and the state gets the rest. Because in reality, your 30000 that you loaned out to mom saved the state money. Interesting. And Stephen, just to switch gears a little bit, what other issues do you have in front of the state legislature this year? I know um, in a previous episode, Joan Wilson, who's fantastic, much like yourself, um, tackled some of this, but would love to uh, love to hear from you. Yeah, Joan's great. Um, and I appreciate being compared to her. Um, I, I think one of our big bills this year is retroactive home care for Medicaid. And it's a bill I'm a huge proponent of. If, you're some, if someone goes into an institutional setting and they get Medicaid benefits, there's a relation back. So you go into February 1st, you go into a nursing home, you apply for Medicaid benefits. You don't get approved until June. As long as you've been eligible the whole time, the facility will get paid back to the February 1st deadline. But if someone's applying for home care, there's no money coming from any of the state money or any of the program money until you're already approved for benefits. So if in that February 1st, you apply for that home care program, and you run out of money in March, who's paying for care from March until June? 
And what often happens is it's the kids or are loaning money to the parents to pay for those programs and they can't get reimbursed. And today we really need to figure out ways of reimbursement. So this would allow people who are eligible for benefits to get paid back going retroactive the three months prior to the date of the application so that they could get the benefits going forward. Um, so that's a big bill of ours this year. Uh, we're also looking at increasing the community spouse allowance amount. Um, so if someone is married and applying for benefits, the healthy spouse, which in Connecticut they call the community spouse, gets to keep a certain percentage of the assets. And it's basically 50% up to a maximum dollar figure, but the 50% tends to be the key number because to get to the maximum and keep the max, it means you had to have double to start with. So what we want to do is have it be all the way up to the maximum for everyone. Everyone can keep the maximum because what often happens is someone with $80,000 of marital assets has to spend 40,000 of that in order to get the healthier spouse or the sicker spouse on benefits and the healthier spouse can only keep 40,000. Well, we want to get it so that the healthy spouse can keep the full 80,000 because what happens when we force that spend down early, now they don't have the proceeds to help pay for their own care if they need it. They can't do any updates on the house, which they're supposed to continue to reside in in a lot of cases. They can't afford medical bills. We have clients who forego medications for themselves because of copay amounts because they spent down so much to put the other spouse in the facility. By increasing the maximum amount, we believe in the long run, the state would actually save funds because it's going to keep people out of nursing homes longer. So we want to go back to that. And it also helps prevent discrimination because in general, Medicaid is a program that shouldn't really discriminate. It's, it's not designed to be discriminatory in nature. And it's for people who cannot afford care. That's what the purpose of the program was. So if we're saying to people, you can't afford to pay for care, but you have too much money, whereas this person over here gets to keep another 60,000 because they started 60,000 higher, you have to spend 50% of yours anyway. The money, the numbers don't add up. So if we just increase that number to the 100 and so about $130,000 is the maximum right now. If we let everyone keep that maximum number, rather than saying 50% up to the max. We would let those people who only have 80, keep the full 80, they'd stay healthier longer. We keep them out of facilities longer. And I think it would make people less afraid of some of these programs. And then we do have a little bit of a bill on veterans benefits this year. We're also looking at dealing with uh, senior fraud protection and consumer protection rights. And we've been working with other organizations on some legislation to help seniors and protect them in nursing homes and other facilities, especially with COVID. It's, it's been a challenge this year for visitation. No, 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 understood. Well, in kind of in the, in the senior, protecting seniors context, um, I believe there's a task force bill in the aging committee that deals with um, uh, tackling that issue. And I know fraud is a huge issue for seniors at all times, but now more than ever in the midst of COVID, something that definitely needs to be addressed. Can you talk a little bit about that legislation? Fraud is definitely an issue for seniors. And the most common fraud people talk about is, is usually the phone call from the fake electric company or the tax guy, or uh, it's those calls can be entertaining when they call me, but you get those calls all the time. And, and that's what people warn seniors about. What a lot of people don't know is there's a lot of companies out there who advertise directly to seniors or for seniors saying that they offer a service and that you need them and you don't need attorneys or you don't need anyone else's help in handling planning for benefits or applying for benefits. 
and they're quite aggressive at it actually. And what we see a lot of times is these people aren't attorneys. So we had a client, you know, I had a situation where a client hired this company to handle their application for public benefits. The company told them to do something uh, involving sale of real estate that they should not have done. It ended up costing the family $70,000 that they shouldn't have had to spend out of pocket. So we see these people who just don't know what they're doing or they have limits on what they're doing. And we want to look at how we can stop this, how we can prevent it. And it's not a Connecticut issue. It's actually a nationwide issue and other states are working to tackle it too. New Jersey has now passed a bill about it. There's legislation that's passed in Florida. Uh, I believe Tennessee and Ohio have now been working on legislation for it. We saw a proposal last year in Rhode Island. So we're starting to see as these companies expand and as this fraud issue kind of expands, a lot of states have taken aggressive steps towards stopping it. Connecticut hasn't gotten there yet. We're hoping that this task force is the first step in that direction of passing a little more restrictive bill because these companies aren't regulated. There's no limits on what they can state in advertising. You know, as an attorney, I can't tell you, I guarantee I'm going to get you something because there's no way attorneys can ever guarantee anything. We should never try. You know, we're going to do the best that we can to solve it, but law isn't a guarantee. Non-regulated companies can guarantee anything that they want. So they have no restrictions on them and they kind of do what they want. And it's led to, we saw there was a class action against one of these companies in New Jersey recently. So we, we've seen a lot of problems related to this companies. And when it started in Connecticut, it was very small and people weren't that concerned, but it's grown bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where we're seeing heavy marketing from some of them, heavy inducements, relationships that they've created. And it's just made it very difficult for people to get good, solid advice. And a lot of the times when we get these cases in, there's a lot of mistakes and then there's a lot of flaws. And sometimes it's too late for us to fix it. You know, unfortunately, there, there's a lot of time limits on these things. And we've had them where you know, it, it's just too late. It should have been fixed originally. And now it's kind of, a, a, you know, you have a time limit. Once you're past the time limit, I can't appeal it. Got it. No, that totally makes sense. Um, got it. Well, hey, Stephen, I'm sorry. We just need to take a quick break. And then when we come back, we'll continue tackling this and talk about the other issues that CTNALA has in front of the state legislature. Win the Future is sponsored in part by Connecticut by the Numbers. If you're looking to learn more about what's happening and why, check out Connecticut by the Numbers, where every number tells a story. Connecticut by the Numbers goes beyond the headlines across the state. For Connecticut news that counts, visit ctnumbers.news or follow them at ctnumbers. Welcome back. We're here for the second part of the episode with uh, Stephen Rubin, who is the president-elect of CT Nela. And Steve, so can you talk a little bit about, I know we touched on this um, prior to the break, but about the difference between age in place and institutionalized care? I guess, Brett, the, the biggest theme I see in my practice, and I've never had a client come to me and go, you know what? I want to go to the nursing home today. I, 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 that's where I belong. I don't, want to, I don't want to be home. I don't want to stay in my house. The reality is we all want to be in the least restrictive environment possible. We want to stay you know, the king of our castle and proud of our own domain, the freedom to have guests if we want to and not be restricted, but we need to have, make sure we have proper care. The idea of aging in place is looking at what restraints or things that we can utilize to help keep people home longer so they're not institutionalized as long, so they're still getting the level of care that they need and utilizing both human power with 
getting home health care aides in the office. But in our case, we're, we're big fans of technology here. Uh, I'm a kind of a tech geek in the office. And there's a lot of really cool tech that allows people to stay home longer. There's a, a prototype of some new carpet padding coming out that's supposed to help measure gait to let people in advance know that there's a fall risk that could be happening. Um, we use a lot of medication reminder tools in our office for our clients. So I have one at my house that I use for my dad. And if he doesn't remember to take his morning pill, it will text me an alert to tell me he has not yet taken the pill. So those kind of things allow us not to have full-time care at home and allow someone to age in place, feel they're independent, but also still have some supervision of someone who can make sure that they're safe. And then as they need it, we can start bringing in care at home. And generally speaking, we can get a lot of care at home for people who want to stay in home. There's a lot of different tools. Um, one of the cooler ones today is there's track systems you can put in your ceiling that allows someone who's, we have a client who's a quadriplegic who can travel room to room in his house using a track system in a ceiling. And there's a joystick that he can actually control using an eye gaze device to drive him around his own house. He still has care coming in, but years ago, it wouldn't have been possible to keep him at home without multiple aides there 24 seven. Now he's got one person there about eight hours a day because he's a lot more independent thanks to this device. So there's a lot of really nice things you can do with technology that just didn't exist years ago. So aging in place is really about letting people have the ability to stay home, stay in their own environment, get the care that they need, and be in the least restrictive environment possible. Facility-based care can be done for a number of reasons. Um, one of the biggest impacts on seniors is the lack of socialization. So a lot of times if we're helping or talking about moving someone into any sort of facility, whether it's a nursing home, an assisted living facility, even an independent living environment, it's to get that socialization aspect. You know, as humans, we're generally social beings, and it's very common for us not to talk to people when we live alone. So putting someone in an environment where they can communicate with others, they have card games, and it's really an interesting dynamic. Every time we have this conversation, I hear from the kids, my mom's not social. And then we do it and we always do it on a test basis. You know, respite care is huge for people who have parents out there or, or taking care of someone and you're thinking you need a break or you need an institutional facility. You can do a short-term stay and just see what the environment's like and let the individuals see. And we have one case where we started as a respite stay. It was supposed to be uh, three or four days. And on the fourth day, we were supposed to go in and see her and we couldn't see her because she had too many things scheduled that day. She was going to play cards in the morning. She had a bingo game that night and a movie night. Could we come back in two weeks? So, you know, a lot of time we lack that socialization. So institutionalization isn't always just, you know, people say like, I'm dumping my mom in a home. Not always. A lot of time it has nothing to do with dumping. It's about making sure they get proper care and they get that socialization aspect. So when we're looking at the different care levels, you have to always go by the person and the personality, the situation, not just financial, but just the overall health and what their environment's like and what they are like. You know, I know some clients who facilities where they belong, not because of the care level, but because of the socialization level. And I have other clients who, because of care level, might need that level. You just have to take it on a case-by-case -case basis and not judge a place just because of the history or the name or what it might mean. You know, so I think institutionalization is a, just a very different thing in this country than it is in others. Um, I'm a huge proponent of looking at places like the Dementia Village in the Netherlands. 
as guidance for how we should operate in the future here. Can you expand on that one a little bit about about the uh, Netherlands? So the Dementia Village is, you know, when it was established and what it does is it's designed for individuals with dementia, but it's about creating an environment of need. The need for the person to have a role in the facility. So instead of it being like a home, whether it feels like it's a community environment, it's an enclosed environment, but there's a post office and the residents get to work in the post office. There's a little grocery store there and you can go shopping and, you know, they actually get to cook their own meals. It's not just, you know, getting everything served to them. It lets them kind of grow as individuals and feel wanted, feel needed in the community. There's groups, there's aids, and there's assistance there. But it's not quite the same as what we do here. You know, in the U.S., very few facilities are going to let somebody cook their own meals if they have dementia. Most of the places will take the kitchen areas out because it's a safety hazard. And in the dementia village, it's a safety hazard, but it's a supervised hazard. So they have, you know, you can have like a key card to turn on the stove, so they can only cook if the staff members are there. They have, they're almost apartment-like, so the spouses can actually be together and have their own space and have space for visitors. So the, just the overall world is very different, and it's really kind of structured in a way where it's designed just for people with dementia, with that level of care. So they've created you know, the, the whole village aspect. If you ever see a video of it or look at pictures of it, it is truly a village. There, there's little shops that kind of line the inside of the place that are run by employees of the facility. But the members or the, the families who go there can actually have a role in those shops. You know, some of the seniors will work the cash register at the grocery store. So it gives them more of a purpose than just a regular home does. So I think it's just a very different way of handling dementia care. And it's something we're going to have to consider how we approach it in this country because dementia is increasing. The statistics show we're going to see more and more cases of dementia every year. So if we're going to keep seeing these cases and we're seeing different ages, and we've seen cases where people diagnosed with dementia in their 30s now. So if we're going to see this huge gap of dementia, we're going to have that huge increase. We have to change our approach to dementia care in this country, and we have to start planning for it now before we get hit with the dementia tsunami. Yeah, that's such such an important issue to tackle. Um, Absolutely. And as we talk about kind of protecting seniors and in, in, um, a, a faction of the senior population that's... Obviously, all all of the population is important. Veterans, in particular, um, is is something that I know you're that CTNA is focused on. Can you talk a little bit about that, Bill? Veter- there's a lot of different programs out there that are specifically for veterans' benefits. The most common one people hear about is called aid and attendance. And really, what the program is for is for veterans who served during a time of war and were honorably discharged or their spouses can be eligible for funds that help pay for home care or for assisted living, or in some cases, other levels of nursing home care. So it's, it's a really great program. What the flaw is and where we run into issues is how do we intersect that program with Medicaid or other benefit programs? Because the program has a dollar figure cap. So if it's only paying out, you know, I think it's $2,200 a month right now, as the max benefit, how do we cover the additional cost if the rest of the pro, if it's going to cost us six to eight thousand a month for care? And a lot of the time, what we did is you would sync up Medicaid and you would sync up with the veterans' benefits, so the person would be eligible for both programs, and it would make it very simple to get the care in. Unfortunately, what happens in Connecticut is that they count that veterans' benefit as income from any of the Medicaid programs. 
So the way aid in attendance works, it's actually called the current law pension program. So you get a pension portion, which is not a traditional pension as people think of as a pension, but it's just how the Veterans Association and Veterans Benefits are referred to as a pension. And then you get a riser, which is called the aid and attendance portion. The riser is not counted as income, but the pension portion is because it's classified as pension by the VA, even though the entire thing is really all connected because you don't get the riser unless you get the pension. You don't get the pension unless you need the riser. It all comes in. So the whole thing is really one giant program. But what happens is, is now you're collecting social security benefits and then you get this veterans program. And situation I actually just dealt with this morning, an individual who has a $2,000 a month social security income, they're gonna qualify as a single person. So it's a little over $1,800 a month they're gonna get from the VA, we figured out. That's going to put them over the income cap for any program. So in order to get them on the program, we have to take the veterans benefit and basically the additional money. And we're going to have to move it into a what's called a pooled trust, which is a complicated system. But the biggest reason why this is a problem, they got to pay for this. So now we're charging them money to manage the account, money to set up the account, fees to create this account, to get the money into a trust that's still for their benefit only anyway. So we're just basically doing this circuitous route to take your money, put it somewhere else to get it back to you when we could just make it that the programs don't do that. So we want to just stop the circuitous route, stop the additional cost, stop the headaches for veterans. You know, we, we thank for their service and the freedoms we enjoy. We shouldn't make it this hard for them to get care. Wow. That's a, that's a really interesting issue. Oh, well, Steven, sorry. Um, Anything else you want to tackle? I don't want to take up more of your time, but this is fascinating and obviously really important issues you're, you're addressing. I think, you know, what we do at CTNAO and why CTNAO was created is, you know, it's really to help people. It's an advocacy organization. You know, we're here to help attorneys. We're here to help individuals. We're here to help people as they age to make sure we can get the care people need. And, you know, elder law attorneys really utilize those skill sets to help people. Um, you know, in our office, we have a care coordinator on staff. So it's not just us looking at it from a legal side. We try to do a holistic approach of making sure you can find and get that care you're going to need based on assessments. And using care coordinators, using elder law attorneys, it helps people pre-make their decisions. You know, the reality is, do you want someone else making decisions for you? I don't. I don't like when anyone tells me what to do. It doesn't go well. It's why I own my own business. Well, if I wanted someone to tell me what to do all the time, that's, you know, maybe I wouldn't plan, but I have a plan in place where I'm essentially pre-making my own decisions. So I've already done my estate plan. I've made my own planning. I've made sure I have a situation. If I needed long-term care, I have a plan ready for pretty much every situation that I could think of. Now, is it going to change as I get older? Absolutely. I'm going to change different things about it. A plan is never set in stone. Every few years, it should be reviewed. But I'm going to have a plan no matter what, so that when that time comes, it's not a crisis. It's just going to be a transition to something else. And making sure we transition is going to be the key. So working with other law, you know, working on a lot of this legislation, we really see why we need these transitions in life. So Stephen, you'd mentioned age in place and the on the Age in place and institutionalized uh, mm -hmm. front with age in place and trying to incorporate more of the socialization 
piece, what other technologies are emerging that may make that kind of meshing of the two easier in the future? I think the utilization that COVID forced people to go digital or go virtual, I think utilizing Zoom is allowing people to age in place a lot longer because it's allowing us to communicate with people. Um, so it's simple things like my favorite technology buy these days is actually an Apple Watch. And I don't wear watches, so it's not for me. But Apple Watches are really good for seniors. I make my dad wear one. Now, it's not because he's addicted to texting, although now that he knows he can text from it, he probably is. I got him the watch because it has a fall sensor in it. So if he falls, the watch will actually trigger an alert and it can call 911 on its own. So that's a really great tool because now I don't worry about if I let him go out shopping or if he goes for a walk in the snow or if he leaves the house or even trips in the house. I don't have to worry about someone watching him 24-7. I have something that's going to give me an alert and can call an ambulance if he's not responsive very quickly. And you can adjust the settings on it. So utilizing even consumer-grade technology is huge towards allowing people to remain independent longer. Um, you know, Some of the more common clocks or devices with cameras these days that allow people to you know, have a conversation or have a video call. We're seeing more and more video calling with our clients, FaceTiming, um, Google Meetup. Any of these programs are giving people that aspect. And then adding on to the consumer-grade technology is you know, the Netflix party stuff. You know, that, when that launched, you know, people were, that was originally for a younger generation of people to utilize it to watch a TV show with a friend. We use it for seniors. It allows them to have movie night with their grandkids. They can ha watch the program. Everyone watches the same thing. You can set it up with cameras at the same time. So you can, it's really a great way of getting that socialization aspect. We've seen it work for card games now electronically. There's card programs that you can play as a group. And a lot of clients may not use the computer, but iPads or any of the tablets really and virtual, you know, a lot of the phones, they're easier and they're a lot easier for people to learn. So it's making communication just a world different of what it ever was. So using this, the basic stuff that's already out there, you can keep someone home a lot longer and safer longer. And then there's so many things you can do from an, for an expansion. Um, you know, one of the more common things I'm seeing now is an issue is, you know, gas shut off, right? You know, wh what is about a safety risk? Does someone know if they're cooking? Do they burn it? Do they forget you have food in the oven? I mean, we've all done it. But if you're older and you're an individual who, you know, with dementia or developing dementia, you know, that becomes a higher risk. So there are devices now that allow you to have automatic shutoffs so it only can run for 30 minutes. Or you can have it so you can turn on and off things remotely. Um, from to the smart houses of turning on and off lights and things like that, we can do the same thing with a stove. We have a client who's uh, put in an Alexa device on a microwave because her mom liked to microwave coffee, but she'd put it in for 30 minutes at a time. So if the microwave is running, she can just turn it off. So it gives a lot of freedom and flexibility for aging in place and keeping people safe longer. If we just start thinking outside the box and you know, we always look at the technology of how does this make my life easier? Take it from a different perspective. How does this make my life safer? How does this make my parents safer at home? How can we use these things? And it gives us a lot more you know, room to move around. It gives us a lot more freedom. It gives a senior a lot more freedom to stay home longer. And 
for a lot of our children with special need cases, using technology is also something we do to give them more independence. So technology and the, the changing world of tech can be a huge component of letting someone actually live their life and have a lot more freedom, a lot more flexibility, and not feel like there's always someone looking over their shoulder. So I think there's a lot of things that are out there that we can do. We just have to you know, take it incrementally, do it slowly, figure out what works in a situation and what resources you want to utilize. But I, I think tech is going to change the aging component in the long term. I think it's going to give us the aspect of socialization for people who don't want to leave their home and who want to get things done or have that independence at home. Uh, we, we have a client who we just had a conversation with about getting a remote controlled lawnmower for next year. He's in his late 80s and he's never not mowed his own lawn. And he's really hated the idea of getting a landscaper. It was a huge fight with the family. So we looked at getting him a lawnmower that he didn't have to get off the porch but he didn't have to hire someone to do it either. And for him, it ended up being, you know, you know, it took a while to get him to the comfort level of it, but he got there because he gets to pick when the mower is going to work. There's all sorts of controls. If he really wants to mow a section, he can, but he doesn't have to. And it gives him freedom of choice. It's no longer him being told you're not mowing anymore. It's if you don't want to mow, you got the thing and just plug it in. So I think technology really is going to change the game on how we handle pretty much everything. Interesting. Yeah, it's really cool stuff. Steven, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you for it. having me. Oh, God, pleasure. Um, and thanks, everybody, for listening to another episode of Win the Future. And we will be back next week. Thank you for listening to the Win the Future podcast, sponsored by the strategic communications firm, A Better Campaign. Make sure to visit our website at abettercampaign.com backslash win the future. Please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your friends. Thank you for tuning in. Please tune in again next Thursday for another episode of Win the Future.